Queerly Beloved. We are gathered here today for some juicy conversations about all things spiritually queer and queerly spiritual. I'm Will Fisher, and I'm a light worker, a retreat-making maven, a coach, and a drag queen. And I'll be chatting with the most amazing healers, visionaries, wizards, and witches who I can't wait for you to get to know and to learn from their epic stories and powerful practices. All right, let's get super woo together in this spiritual AF, queer AF cosmic container. And blast off. Hello, beloveds. I'm thrilled to share this newest episode of Queerly Beloved, where I speak with Dr. Alex Belser, who has been a leader in the psychedelic research community for the last 20 years, and he's an editor of the book Queering Psychedelics, From Oppression to Liberation and Psychedelic Medicine, an incredible book I highly recommend. Dr. Belser was an investigator on clinical trials of psilocybin and MDMA to treat depression, anxiety, and other issues. He serves as a psychologist and co-investigator at Yale, and as the chief clinical officer of Cybin, where he leads their clinical programs in psychedelic therapeutics. He's also part of the Shakruna Institute's Women, Gender Diversity, and Sexual Minorities Working Group. And we speak in this interview about how psychedelic mystical experiences often have an overlap with what we think of as queer spirituality. Alex shares some wild stories from the field as an investigator in psychedelic therapy clinical trials. We talk about the queerness of reclaiming our pleasure. We talk about the ways psychedelics can be used for self acceptance. We talk about the diverse ways and settings that people can be with psychedelics, from the very clinical hospital room settings where Alex has worked, to the wildly free, radical fairy rituals we've observed. We talk about these things and so much more in this exciting interview. I can't wait for you to get into it. Enjoy. Hello, Alex. So good to have you on Queerly Beloved. How are you, my dear? Oh, it's lovely to be with you, Will. Thanks for uh, having me today. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. As I was preparing, I was like, oh, I want to ask that. I want to ask them that. I, want to <laughs> I have so many questions and who knows how many of them we'll get to. But uh, yeah, it's a, a joy to be in your presence and to share this time. And um, as I like to start off all my interviews with, I would love for you to share with me and the listeners today who you are in this moment, this day, this part of your life. Um, but to share that by describing the perfect drag avatar. Uh, I'm feeling the w- chilly, wintry solstice, icy wind on the finger uh, fingers uh, in the cold and kind of getting into a drag avatar of like um, cave sea creature monster with like glorious luminous psychedelic scales uh in some sort of like large and cumbersome backdrop <laughs> um uh with with i think with sort of goggles and um i'm like blues and greens and violets uh, uh and some sort of like shimmery uh chiffon bubbles up front that's where i'm at right now <laughs> Oh, that's so vivid. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and I will share. I'm sort of uh, prepping for a lot of family time. And I think my drag avatar is almost like um, in some kind of like comfy grandma vibe. Like I'm I'm, I'm diving into like comfy grandma, like in a, like a knitted sweater, but a fabulous drag version of of granny. You know, she's got like long silver hair and she's got this like beautifully like knitted 
you know, rainbow, like floor length duster. And um, she's just ready to, <laughs> you know, be with the family in all her love, loving grace. I, I see her right now. There she is looking, <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I am just so excited about your work with, in the psychedelic community and the the bridging of queerness and psychedelics. And, you know, it's yeah. something that feels especially personal to me as psychedelics in the last couple of years have been a huge part of my personal growth and transformation and in my spiritual path. And so I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, first of all. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I don't really see myself as so much building a bridge, but sort of just pointing a light to the bridges that are already there, oftentimes subterranean. Uh, Quaker psychedelics have been queer for a long time and have been a big part of queer cultures, subcultures and, and above ground cultures. And um, it's in 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 writing and editing this book, uh, we wanted to highlight those voices and let that not get swept aside by a heteronormative uh, dismissive culture. Mm, yeah, I appreciate that. And I feel like for me, I've had a, a mixed bag of psychedelic experiences in all queer spaces. And then more recently, showing up in psychedelic circles and being the only queer person in the space and feeling uh, a little isolated and sometimes uncomfortable. And it's actually something that I'm moving in my career towards is finding ways to create more queer inclusive spaces um, for that kind of work. Um, yeah. And so I, I just, I see you, the work that you're doing uh, is yeah, helping to, to create those bridges or at least uh, yeah, point them out as you mentioned. So yeah, one of the chapters in Queer and Psychedelics, which is the new book just out this last week, right? That's right. Uh, talked about psychedelic mysticism is already queer. And that was one of the chapters that felt the most resonant uh, for me in the context of queerness and spirituality. So I was wondering if we could kind of like dive into some of the subjects in that in that section. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So let me just... If it's okay, I'll just kind of set the table a little bit. There's this idea, and I'm sure many people watching and listening know that psychedelic medicine is experiencing a resurgence, and we see that it can be helpful for a variety of things, anxiety, depression, trying to stop smoking, trying to stop drinking, trauma, PTSD, um, and potentially other, other things could be really helpful. And the question is why? Like, <laughs> what happens? Like, we, we sometimes joke about this. Uh, it's the mystical black box. People go through the box, something's inside of that box, and they get better on the other side. But like, what exactly is going on for them? And we even use a scale in the clinical research called the mystical experience questionnaire, which is taken from Advaita Vedanta and sort of like Christian mysticism accounts and sort of plunked down into these psychedelic trials. And it says, it asks the person, have you had an experience of unity, of overwhelming positive mood, a transcendence of time and space, a feeling of ineffability of the experience, um, something paradoxical um, in the experience that it's hard to talk about. And, what we see is when people get high scores on this scale, they tend to get better in a variety of different studies in different states and different academic teams with psychedelic medicine. And that's wonderful. But my critique and my question is what's going on in that black box? And this particular scale 
conceives of the mystical, the human experience as a single sort of experience. Like there's like a one type of, I mean, this is my read on it, one type of uh, non-dual attainment to a type of mystical consciousness that is sort of the pinnacle at the top of the mountain. And all other, and including the creator of this scale, W.T. Stace, all other experiences that I think are queerer in some ways uh, are seen as sort of trivial or secondary or steps along the path, but not actually the thing itself. And so I think, and I, I have talked more, and we can talk more about it if you'd like, that, uh, you know, my experience with mystical experience in talking in, in, in many scores of interviews with patients in psilocybin uh, clinical research at Yale and NYU and in the community is that people have a, a huge multiplicity of, of varieties of experiences and that these experiences um, have a lot in common, oftentimes an overlap with, with what we think of as queer spirituality or queer experience. They are deeply embodied. And so much of the queer political movement uh, and the queer health movement is a reclamation of the body as a site of pleasure, as a site of ecstasy, as a conduit for both something that is imminent within us and potentially beyond surpasseth human understanding. And people with psychedelic Experiences have big body experiences. They have expulsions of dark matter from their chest. I, I talked with somebody who had a fear of cancer recurring in her abdomen and she would, would eject it from her body, shouting it out. Another man who had fear, um, of a recurrence of, t- of testicular cancer and he, uh, exploded it out like a mushroom cloud from his body. And people have shaking and they see their corpuscles and their blood and their bone. Uh, they have experiences of pleasure and ecstasy, you know. The other thing about mystical, spiritual experiences is that, you know, they're not all lone meditators on a mountaintop. That's, in fact, uh, they are what Carol Gilligan says in sort of the feminist reclamation of psychology, uh, experiences of care with one another, experiences of deep kin and kindred relationship with one another and queer communities, queer collectives is not about the isolated atomized individual in late liquid capitalism trying to eke out a living. It's about coming into deeper relationship and having those relationships in the spiritual experience, in the medicine experience be more uh, deeply held that we experience the real in relationship with one another and that any single individual's quest to understand the nature of reality as a solo individual, like there is a potentially a path there, but it's not the only path and the path of love, mutual affection, empathic connection is itself a type of liberatory, soulful, human, queer, often uh, not entirely and only queer, but a queer experience. And then lastly, and there's other pieces to this, is just besides the idea that we experience nature and the ikoros of ayahuasqueros and the sight and the sensuousness and the sound and the, the rush of the water and the feel of the, um, the, the, the puma's fur against you and the, the feel of the wet of the cloud on you. These are sensuous embodied experiences, but they're also, they're playful, like queer spirituality can be playful, like radical fairy spirituality can be deeply playful. It's, it's not austere and so self-righteously self-serious. Um, that true transcendent experience can be, um, uh, la- la- full of laughter and, um, subversion and attention to tower dynamics, but also uh, turning them inside out, um, both in our own minds and potentially in the space 
spaces that we inhabit, both with psychedelic medicine and without. Um, and I know I said the last, but I'm going to put one last thing on here, which is that I think that religious, spiritual, mystical experiences are inherently political at heart uh, in the way that science is political, in the way that political means to be in power relationships with each other. We know this from the movement, the ACT UP movement, and during the plague years of HIV and AIDS, which continue to this day, but in the, in the activist, most active period there, that these, these are spiritual and soulful collective movements that are grounded in a type of queer reclamation of people's own spirituality. And to pretend that they exist in a place, time and apart from the travesty of, of war, of suffering, of injustice, of homophobia, of transphobia, of rejection from families, of excommunication from churches, from excommunication from religious schools, it, um, belies the reality, I think, of the queer experiences, I understand it, for many people, experiences, is that that these experiences are, are political at, at heart, and that you can't really have an experience of relationship with the mystical without having it be embedded in these in these contexts. And in fact, that that is itself maybe part of the spiritual message that some people come away from from these experiences, that it means returning to the world in a different way. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, that's so much to unpack, but such such good stuff. And yeah, I appreciate you you sharing all that. Um, yeah, one of the things that stands out for me is one of the things that has been challenging for me in the way I've experienced psychedelics personally is that it is almost inevitably a very embodied experience. And I'm often in a space where everyone else is just lying there very still and sort of I don't know what's going on with their bodies. And for me, it's consistently been in my body and required movement of some kind. And what just came up for me as you were sharing is like, oh, maybe I'm just doing it a queerer way than some of the other people in my space. <laughs> you know, Because it has been very in my body. And then the other piece is that for, for me, it's been very, very playful. And that play is actually something that has supported me in being with the medicines. That it's, it's the element of play that has helped me in the deepest challenges of those experiences. That I've been able to tap into my playful spirit and energy to move that energy that is creating the, the unpleasantness. And to be with it in a good way and to learn from it in a good way. And so again, your sharing was like, oh yeah, maybe I'm just doing it the queer way. Um, Yeah. Other people who are not queer can't do it that way, but. Well, but I think that that, you're put, but that that's the point exactly. It's just that in some of these chapters of Crying Psychedelics, we have an entire section on people going to ayahuasca circles, for example, where they feel like uh, it's not just the gender sorting that happens in some Santo Daime ceremonies where men go on the left and women go on the right and there's no openness to non-binary experience. But it's it's even just the little things like people don't feel like they can lie down with their on their on their tummy 
in a seven hour ceremony because they're exposing their butt to the center of the circle and they have shame about their butt and they're worried that other people will know that they're queer or gay and then therefore they're doing something seductive or provocative and there's this entire inner experience around the level of welcomeness that the person feels in a space which is dominated by heteronormative tropes about what is the right way to perform. If someone wants to get up and dance, are we allowed to dance? Can we move our bodies? Can I dance? On can I move my torso and shoulders and hips on the mat? Um, and, and in some spaces, that's not really um, invited, right? And, and 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 I'm not saying that's the wrong way, but that, but but that is a way that uh, people and I think queer people don't feel in, uh, aren't really always sure. And so there's a sort of self policing, a self repression, which we, inter- I mean, I grew up with internalized homophobia, a self repression of my own instincts to, to be more fully myself, not knowing if it was entirely safe to be otherwise. And this plays out in ritual context and underground settings. It plays out in clinical methodology context in the clinic at the psychedelic methods, you know, re, um, research centers that are popping up. It plays out when we have safe protocols that don't allow people to move very much because we are afraid of fall risk. Like in any hospital you go to in the United States, there's huge metrics about people falling and that you don't want anyone transferring out of beds into anywhere else, certainly not moving around too much. And so, um, the, the idea in many indigenous cultures where, where there's wisdom traditions of, of actively dancing, mm-hmm. spirit possession, of actually moving the body as a way to move the energy to get in, as you put it, contact with parts of ourselves, with parts of, you know, depending on your worldview, spirit entities that can help us reshape and reshift. The movement can be a type of medicine, but we, um, are afraid of people suing. So then we shut that down. And I, I don't know that that's anti queer, but I think that there is, um, in queer dance culture and like with MDMA in the eighties and nineties, even today with queer use of ketamine and other psychedelics, like there's, there are tropes around movement that arise that are, I think, unique, uh, and important, um, and something that we have to offer, uh, in a meaningful way, not just for our own sanctity, but for, for everybody. It's, it's, we, we have a seat at the table. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And fortunately I'm, I sit with a circle that involves dance, but I remember at my very first sit, I was the first person to get up and move. And I was like, just on the edge of my mat, just like, I need to move this. And as soon as the energy felt like that was appropriate, I was up there on the dance floor and it created such a better experience for me. And it's interesting, you know, because I do see that there is this correlation between safety and these protocols, right? And and I also feel that sometimes there are moments in ceremony where I want to experience touch with my fellow participants. And that's, you know, looked on as not uh, a part of the protocol, right? And it, it feels like in some respects that these measures of safety have sort of limited uh, our experience of, of freedom within these spaces sometimes. And it makes me think about sort of this uh, male-female uh, setup uh, for clinical work that just seems antiquated. And yes, perhaps it was intended to be in the effort of safety, but it just feels like, it's, it feels to me like 
this space needs to get queered up. You know, like that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm vibing. Um, and I'm just curious, do you, do you, does that resonate with you that perhaps some of these limitations are really simply stuck in this, uh, this perhaps overcautious concern for safety or perhaps it's not overcautious. Well, I, I, yeah, I, there's so many real, real safety concerns to be concerned with. And I, you know, I have to say as a psychologist working with somebody, like if somebody's in a chair and they fall out of it and hit their head on the wall, like it's really concerning, especially if they're having a lot of psychedelic medicine in the body. It's like, are they, What's going on for them? Are they safe? Do we need to go to the ER? And so there are real safety concerns. Uh, and it has to do with um, how we as a society hold risk collectively and, in, and individually. And we've seen this with the COVID pandemic and how different people have different risk profiles and levels. You know, I, I think that um, there's a lot of, I'll, I'll switch the this idea of the gender dyad with traditionally air quotes around traditionally conventionally, there's a a cisgender male and a cisgender female therapist in the room. And I think that moving away from that has been um, tarnished or hampered by a lot of fear, a lot of fear in the community that I think has to do with fear of sexual abuse happening. If there's two men in the room, which has, uh, which reprises, um, really specific stereotype gender tropes around masculinity and men and boys will be boys and what men do versus, and then also seeing, and this has been critiqued, the cisgender woman as some sort of protection against uh, ethical or sexual transgressions that might have happened or might happen in the room, which we know have happened in the room, uh, but seeing her as some sort of like stop gap or some sort of protective mechanism, which is in its own way, um, essentializing and belittling. And then all of that, you know, being afraid of a non-binary or a diverse gender spectrum uh, where uh, people of different walks could be paired with clients who come in who want to take psychedelic medicine with different needs, with their own gender identities, with their own preferences for working with people that may not actually match what your presumption would be. Uh, and to really just like have a, a patient-focused, client-focused understanding of what that might look like. And the field um, of psychedelic research, I think, is has been trying to do something really uh, out there. I mean, like, like when I first started, when we first started the team at NYU in 2006, and I was going to conferences in 2001 through, through today, it, it was the idea that you would even start a psychedelic trial at a research one top tier university was as uh, seen as out there. And so everyone put their ties on and buttoned up and used the most um, conventional methods and safety protocols and like biomedical drug uh, sort of modeling for how to go about and doing this research, which may be part of the reason why it has been successful. You, you, you take the norms of the dominant culture and use them in order to reform a system from within using that structure of let's run the studies, get the data, let the data fund more studies and have it be considered for regulatory review by the FDA so that it could be legal or for what's happening in places like Oregon or Denver, where you have local initiatives. And 
I think there's a place for that. It's not necessarily a radical place. Uh, and so underground, we've also seen a flourishing of, and an experimentation with new ways of, of doing things. Uh, and I think if we keep our ethical, uh, grounding, we'll be able to proceed, um, you know, with, with care for one each, one another and care for our, our own integrity of practice. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It makes me think of, the Mattachine Society, you know, and Harry Hay is the founding member and they were dressed in their suits and the women in their like skirt, you know, and that proceeded. That was early on in Harry Hay's career. And then eventually he was creating the radical fairies and sort of, you know, it had to start somewhere where there was uh, a a validation, right? That, That the heteronormative world could see that and see that gay people could look normal and, and take those precautions. Um, what's coming up for me too, is this idea of like, there is the sort of clinical work that's happening with psychedelics. And then there's the more shamanic work, but also as I was sharing has often has some protocols and some clear agreements. And then, then sort of on the other side of that is the ritual space that I, I believe you and I have both, uh, observed and, uh, been around, which is, uh, you know, like for example, the radical fairy gatherings, you know, where, where folks are, there's very little rules or agreements, right? It's, it's all much a bacchanal fest. Um, and I'm just curious your thoughts on sort of those three, uh, windows into transformation and, uh, any ideas around, um, you know, wh- what, the distinction is between those and perhaps the, the, the impact of those. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I'm just curious about, yeah, how there is a wide range of ways that we can experience these psychedelics for transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, part of what I think makes this queer is there is not one way. And that I'll tell you, I, I've, I've worked with people, we're giving them psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in mushrooms and at pretty high doses on First Avenue in Bellevue Hospital at New York University School of Medicine. And these are sort of like middle-aged people who are like working professionals, lovely people, that, but they're not going to like the shamanic ceremony. They're not going to the radical fair ceremony. Um, and they, uh, have said things to me like it really gives me comfort that I'm doing this thing, this like psychedelic hallucinogen with doctors in white lab coats in the hospital in case anything goes wrong, like I'm going to be taken care of. And they feel for them, this creates a sense of safety. And I think that some fantastic work has done been done even in, even in a setting like that where you think you want to be in nature or in a big retreat setting. And yet in this little room, some beautiful, beautiful work can happen as I think happens in hospitals all around every day. Um, you know, the, I think that we have learned and continue to need to learn more from living lineages of shamanic wisdom. Um, and that includes living lineages of underground practitioners who have carried both wisdom path traditions from indigenous people, but also the sort of last 
well, frankly, like the last 70 years of psychedelics being used in underground settings and, and beyond, uh, certainly. But, you know, in sort of modernity, like sort of since LSD was synthesized, people have been using psychedelics and learning and teaching and training and supervising and doing so in legal context. And then it became illegal and carrying those torches. And uh, many of those underground facilitators have vastly more experience than most approved above ground trial, you know, facilitators, uh, and we have a lot to learn. And then, you know, in a radical fairy space, and I, there's all sorts of queer spaces, but like it's, it's intentionally anti-doctrinal, right? It's like, there's no, there's no book. There's no uh, dogma. In fact, um, it, it, even the presentation of dogma is like a used by, uh, you know, the sisters of perpetual indulgence as like a sort of like a, a playful uh, subversion of the idea of Catholic church dogma. And, um, there in the book, there's an incredible chapter by um, Fang Wolfie, Wolfwoman Joy, who writes about queer people in intentional ritual spaces taking psychedelic mushroom tea by the hundreds on Beltane Day. Um, and that's not held, the forms of that are not held that tightly, right? Like when I've done Zen Sashin retreats for six days of silent meditation, Depending, people talk in the Zen tradition like, well, oh, well, this Zen center holds the forms very tightly. And this Zen center is like a little more loosey goosey. And that just means like, do you have to show up exactly on time? Are you not allowed to cough during the session? You know, but the radical fairies, like the forms are held very loosely, right? They're, it's never the same ritual twice. It's part of the magic and the magics mm-hmm. of it. And, um, you know, I think that there's, uh, radical beauty in that for some people and that that for them is their equivalent of safety right where there's there's no doctor (laughs) there's no locked door there's no you know um uh none of these sort of uh instantiations of canonical white heterosexual male cisgender power and that can be really liberating and it can also also come off the rails as we've seen in a lot of these sorts of festival communities and that where people um like with like with any drug taking like with drinking like unless you have social mores and norms where people protect each other and know how much they're taking and have a designated driver and have caregiving and harm reduction and risk management and benefit maximization like if you don't have all of that the culture doesn't know what it means when you take this medicine into your body and so um we can do a much better job with all of that yeah yeah, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, it's interesting. On my journey, my experience with psychedelics certainly started off recreationally. And yeah. then more recently, it's been very much uh, with a strong intention of personal growth, healing, and spiritual development. And and it, one of the chapters that I appreciated talks about psychedelics for the sake of pleasure. Right. And it was a reminder to me because I, I mean, it, it's work. Like when I'm working with medicines, it's work. And a lot of times it's pleasant. <laughs> there's pleasant parts. And ultimately there's a, a lot of bliss afterwards or at some point, but often it's like almost more unpleasant or it's, you know, half and half. So that, that chapter just reminded me, I was like, oh yeah, I can do psychedelics 
for the sheer pleasure of it. And just to go in with the intention of joy, it doesn't have to be about releasing all my loneliness or like, or like addressing my ancestral trauma. Like I can actually just be with this medicine and experience all the ecstatic bliss of it. Um, so I, I just wanted to call that out, that that was an invitation to me. Yeah, and there's a, and, and in, in the book, there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, psychedelics can be therapeutic. You know, I, I think a lot of people have your experience, which is that they get into psychedelics not because they want to sign up for a study or go to an um, intentional week-long workshop drinking medicine and working on their deepest self, which is beautiful, but they get into it because they wanted to party. They yeah. wanted to go out and dance. They wanted to go to, to the, the rave or the discoteca, or they wanted to take drugs with their girlfriend, boyfriend, partner. And, uh, and, and maybe that for many people leads to, I think in some ways an overrepresentation. I mean, there are more queer people, I think, taking medicine and open to taking medicine and doing intentional work mm-hmm. with medicine. And I think that playful, quote unquote, recreational or sometimes called quote naturalistic use uh, in the community is like, it can be really beautiful. We have, you know, people start to get worried when the doctor prescribes somebody medicine and then that person enjoys it. And it's not just the issue of opioids or benzos or people with ha- habit risk forming addictive substances. Cause that's, I'm talking about something else, but like if people in, have a good experience, then, then suddenly f- red flags start to come up for people. Um, and uh, I don't understand how medicine um, can't, like psychedelic medicine, like MDMA can't, as it was called once called, which I think is not a great name for it, but ecstasy, it can, it can help induce true ecstasy mm-hmm. in people. And it also is an incredible when partnered uh, with some great psychotherapy uh, treatment. It looks like an incredible treatment for the treatment of severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And it can be both of those things um, because it's use depends on the context that we bring to it. Uh, I think it's queer to reclaim pleasure, pleasure in our bodies, pleasure in our company with one another, and pleasure in entering into non-ordinary consciousness and and to be curious about what comes up there for us. Mm. Yeah, that was another point I noticed in the book was this uh, understanding that psychedelics do support folks to be in these non-ordinary spaces and that us queer folks live in non-ordinary spaces, right? And so that that's part of our connection to this this world, right? That there is this inherent um, uh, desire for queerness and psychedelics to, to be together. Um, I really appreciated that. And one of the things that I was left with more curiosity about is, is how the queer community can serve the psychedelic community and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, first of all, I think there's some major overlaps already, uh, but you know, a lot of, um, and Andrew Solomon talks about this idea of vertical versus horizontal identities, right? Like, so 
if you grew up in a family, you're like in that family line and in a vertical identity and like your parents were um, Catholic. So then you're Catholic, but then there's these horizontal identities like being queer uh, where um, the people who form affinity communities around that come from all walks. And so they're inherently pluralistic. You know, you get a circle of queer people together and oftentimes you have 50 people and there are 50 different religious families that they grew up in in slightly different cultural contexts. And um, there may be, although are not necessarily like a, a richer racial and ethnic mix of diversity and different social locations in the mix. So it doesn't necessarily center that particular single trunk, right? It's a coming together. And that pluralistic horizontal identity is actually what I have learned is what psychedelics are like, which is that um, people who are drawn to psychedelics as researchers, as clinicians, as people who are on a quest for self-knowledge, to make sense of a world that is oftentimes nonsensical, that they tend to be from every family and every walk and every major faith tradition and from all over every 50, all 50 states and beyond, obviously. And so when you get them together, there's this like vast pluralistic sort of experience of an affinity and they those strands weave together in interesting ways so that they, that they are anti-dogmatic, that we learn a lot from one another potentially, but we also have a shared identity, either being queer, and I know that these are not the same, but or being interested and in working with psychedelics in a meaningful way. Um, Nishay Devineau has talked about this as... Um, She's used the phrase of coming out of the psychedelic closet, uh, like people coming out as queer and then using that metaphor to come out as somebody who uses psychedelics as, as a parent, as a, as a person at the workforce. And it's, it does come with risks and those risks may be asymmetrical with coming out as queer, as gay, but maybe there's like that metaphor language can be, can be helpful. I think that what the queer community though can learn from the psychedelic community is that, um, I think we might even be able to learn something intrinsic about who we are. Like, have you ever like been up late at night with friends and just saying like, what, what is queerness anyway? Like there's all these bioevolutionary reasons that uncles better protect their kin and whatever. But, but like, what's the, what's it about? Like, what's the deep meaning of queer people in all cultures walking on the boundary zone between the, the, you know, setting up camp at the edge of the village, right. Rather than being right in the center, walking between the sort of normal and ab seen as abnormal between sky and earth, between female and male. And um, I, I think that psychedelics are not only potentially tools and sacraments and resources to help us understand not just code switching in the most like small way, but like in the big way that we switch our fundamental programming when we switch back and forth between spaces. And they may help us learn that queer people have been carriers of the torch of psychedelic knowledge in many cultures and indigenous practices and communities for generations. And the story that they're queer has been elided over and over again. And I'm not a and cultural anthropologists, but my understanding and my sense is that these medicines are often carried by people who are not actually sitting on top of the, you know, they're not running the armies or like running the city. They're the ones who have a different, they have a different life experience. And that actually 
as burdensome as it can be, opens them up for a different way of holding a, a medicine that helps you switch between different consciousnesses. And there's, I think the queer folks have been carrying psychedelic medicines and potentially that is part of the reason that is part of the answer to the question of like, who, who are we? Who are queer, trans, non-binary, you know, spirit walker folks on, uh, in the world? Like, who have they been? What is that lost history that was not quite written down because it didn't quite fall into the earth, you know? And I, I don't know. It's more of a question for me than an answer, but it helps me to make sense uh, of a situation that uh, is like, I think that psychedelics have have been queer and the queer folks are a little psychedelic, I think, uh, when we allow ourselves to be and fully inhabit ourselves, our, our true personhood. I love that. And it makes perfect sense. As queer people, we are walking between worlds. And with psychedelics, we have an experience that is often between worlds. And so it makes sense that we would have that affinity towards it. And, and that's why I see this work that you're doing is so important to, to, to reclaim that in many ways, to, to create safety for folks to step into those spaces. Uh, I just wanted to expand a little on what you were saying with that parallel of folks in the psychedelic community and, and in the queer community. And because it definitely resonates with me. And I, I do see when I show up to circles and I am meeting people from all different walks of life that we immediately have that affinity. And part of the parallel that I see too, is that we have done something courageous and that we are, we are about to move into another courageous act together. And that is, it's a courageous act towards my truth in the same way that queerness, when I connect with another queer person, I know that they have come out of the closet, that they have taken this courageous act to look deep inside and stepped out of the closet. And we hold that shared experience together. And in the same way that with the psychedelic communities, I know, oh, this, this is my brother. I've never sat with him before, but he's committed to this work, just like I'm committed to this work. And this person is courageous and in it for their, their truth and for their purpose. Um, so I just wanted to share that that really resonated with me because I've definitely found that when I sit with these different circles, even as the only queer person, um, which has sometimes been challenging, but I still do find that affinity is something we quickly drop into. Yeah. yeah. Um, good stuff. Uh, one of the other things you talk about in the book is about how psychedelics can support people to step more into their queerness. I just wonder if you could share a little bit about that with in terms of uh, really uh, finding their gender truth, their gender expression, their sexuality. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. We have an entire section of chapters just on psychedelics around self-acceptance and a lot of people, and maybe you've heard this. I talk to people all the time who said I took psychedelics and I realized I was a little more something, something than I thought I was to start. And sometimes that's straight men saying that they have attraction to other men or women, attraction to women or um, people who thought they were cisgender, but actually have a more complex or interesting relationship with their body and gender. Um, and uh, we all almost not we all, but almost everyone I know has grown up in some sort of culture where that is 
has extra stress for sexual and gender minority people. And this is well documented. We see it in biological symptoms that, that queer people and black folks, by, by the way, have extra cortisol levels, extra stress in their bodies. And this, the thousands of messages that queer people, young gay boys like me grew, growing up in Indiana faced around being inferior, experiences of peer victimization, bullying, shaming messages, rejection from family, rejection from our church, um, different legal statuses and protections over time, um, passed up for all sorts of experiences. These discriminatory and prejudicial experiences lead to internalized self-hate and shame and all sorts of coping and survival strategies, including coping through being more anxious and hypervigilant against threat, including coping by being more depressive and isolative just to keep yourself out of the stress of the as one of my um, clients said, the world that's fucked up, you know, uh, and uh, it also leads to higher rates of drug use, for example, uh, including crystal meth use. People get by in all sorts of ways. And I, I think that um, it's fascinating to read in the book people's accounts of their own journey with self-acceptance. And, and I like to think about even designing interventions, programs of people where we directly address with the help of psychedelics, sexual minority stress, gender minority stress. Like what's, what would it look like to develop a program to work through the internalized messages of shame and stigma and self hate, uh, and, uh, hypervigilance and dangerous worldview, uh, to work through that with the catalyst of psychedelic medicine and a queer and an LGBTQ affirming therapy intervention that was made of, by, and for queer folks. Um, not to fix them, like in the 1970s and 60s when we were treated with conversion therapies and psychedelics to turn us straight, but to um, empower and to heal the scars and wounds that a heteronormative and transphobic culture have uh, placed upon our psyches. And I think that is possible, and I know that it's actually already happening in small, in some small ways. And so if you're interested in the original idea of queer liberation, I think that queer psychedelic liberation could be a major, um, uh, you know, uh, color in that rainbow. <laughs> and what do you think needs to happen to create more of that, to, to brighten that color? Well, First, I'll just say there's no funding, mm. right? The government's not funding this. Um, industry's not funding this. Anyone who's doing queer psychedelic work is doing it as a labor of love, um, largely. Uh, now, I, I think that this, I think that's what's required is for people to like lean into what, wherever they want to lean into. And I, I honestly think it's, it, it, and I know this is sort of like, I don't mean for this to be pat, but it really does start with you. Like people come up to me and say like, how can I help? And it's like, there's literally a thousand different things you might want to do. Um, what feels like it really brings you to life. Um, and I, I don't think that this has to be like a big top down effort. Like I think that, um, this starts like when you take care of somebody who had a little too much of something in the club and they need like a ride 
like someone to watch out for them and do basic caregiving and harm reduction. This starts when your friend who's like depressed and alone and um, maybe is looking for some help with the sitting and there's like a way to do psychedelic work in a thoughtful way if you feel prepared and you've studied that. And uh, not that I'm advocating that people do this, but this kind of work has and does happen and it can happen in different ways. And frankly, it, it requires us as queer folks and straight and cisgender folks to like do your own damn work. And that means reflexively attending to the ways that you instantiate heteronormative dominance in your treatment in the way that you don't ask for pronouns. When people come in the front door, you don't ask for their preferred name and you um, haven't done your own disinterring of the sort of privilege um, that leads you to, that leads a lot of trans folks and a lot of queer folks to just like show up at the clinic and then they'll leave because they have a, a set of bad experiences. And I think that we can ally together with other marginalized, diverse groups um, around a lot of these issues. And I, that's what I see happening. And it's, it's, it's messy and it's sometimes brutal and it's oftentimes really awesome. So that, that's my take on things right now. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. And I love you calling it a labor of love. And it's, it's something that I'm setting some intentions around myself and planning a queer medicine circle in 23 uh, with that intention of, of creating space for folks to look at wow. some their uh, challenges together. Wow, um, this has been amazing. I have like a bunch of questions that I didn't get to, but maybe we'll do this again sometime. I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation. It's been super enlightening and exciting. Is there any final words you want to leave the listeners with? Any final uh, messages you want to share? Uh, don't lie to yourself about who you are. Mm. Yes. And... Um, <laughs> that seems a little harsh, but I, I say it because um, I, in working with queer folks taking psychedelics, there's, um, there, there is the possibility for new openings to understand our relationship with ourselves, uh, our partners, our bosses, and the people that we work with and that work for us, and um, our power relations, and not lying to ourselves about who we are is, is like, it, it just needs to happen. And it can at any age, at any time in life. Yes. Powerful invitation to leave us with. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is delightful. I'd love to do it again. You take care. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, my beloveds. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and sharing. And if you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out that book, Queering Psychedelics. Until next time. Oh my goddess, beloveds, what a joy it was to be with you today. Let's hang out again soon, okay? Sending so much love and light your way today and every day. Until next time, peace.